Hello and welcome to Stuff That Interests Me with me, Dominic Frisbee. Now, my guest today knows a thing or two about strategy. He was Tony Blair's head of strategy and of communications for some 10 years, I think. And he's also the author of some 12, possibly 13 books. And we're about to talk about his latest book um, today. That man is, of course, Alistair Campbell. Alistair, welcome to the programme. Have I got those numbers right? Uh, Just finished the 14th. 14th book. Next one is a novel about football. Oh, really? Fiction? Pure fiction. Novels are fiction. Uh, They are. That's what they are. They are. Uh, Yeah, and I've written it with a former footballer. Very good. I call Paul Fletcher. Set in, Set in, in the, the north lower of leagues. England in the seventies. No, first division, the old first division. And there's a lot. There's a there's a football and terrorism. The um, that's the main kind of stuff. Huh? Yeah. I once wrote a radio play. I'm getting completely sidetracked. <laughs> but I once wrote a radio play in my early twenties about a bloke who won the lottery. Right. And with the money, he bought Matt Letitia for his Parkside. Brilliant. <laughs> I like it. It's, like a good, it. it's a great premise, but anyway. Well, the, one of the reasons I wrote this novel is because I, I I've always wanted to be a football manager. I, I, now, I do the team, to, I write the team talks. Okay, fantastic, so, yeah, yeah. fantastic. Right, let's talk, before we go into the details of this book, let's talk about politics mm-hmm. um, today. Because it has, in the last ten years, since you've kind of left the front line, if you like, it has changed. What, what's changed in politics for you? Oh, God. I mean... Interestingly, somebody did this the other day. If you go to the index, that book's 10 years ago, it records, 2007. If you go to the index, no Trump, uh, no Macron, no Theresa May, no Jeremy Corbyn. The word Brexit didn't exist. So purely on that level of who are the personalities at the top of the game, as it were, it's changed out of all recognition. I think the big thing that's changed is that the, the sense of what politics is about and what it's for has changed. And I think a lot of that is down to the crash. I actually think that we... Certainly trust in institutions was declining um, anyway, although bizarrely, here we are in Victoria, not far from the palace. The one institution that seems to be bucking the trend is the Queen and the monarchy. It's very strange in a way, if you think about it, given that a lot of this change is about lack of deference. You know, all politicians are the same, we hate them all, all that kind of thing. And I think the crash brought to a head these trends that were about people no longer really believing in fundamental institutions that we believed in for was, most of our time. Was the reaction to the crash the right reaction? No, because... I mean, bailing out the banks and so on. Oh, I see. I don't... I mean, um, I think it's impossible to imagine how they could have done it any other way. I think they had to. But I think the overhang of that particularly the way that our government, uh, I mean, you know, this this book actually records the rise of Cameron and then Cameron and Osborne and the whole austerity thing. I think they used the crash in a way to do things that right-wing governments tend to do, which is slash public services and make the state smaller. Um, but But as a country, I think part of the response to the crash has been Brexit. And that, to my mind, is totally the wrong thing to do. Okay. well, we'll come back to Brexit in a moment Uh, uh, and we're going to put you right on that and you're going to see what an enlightened decision the population has made. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, But let's talk about because the one thing you didn't mention in what in what has changed in politics is technology. No, that is a big part of it. Big part of it. So and I think that has been so the whole if if I go through so 97 when I started, you know, when we first started, Tony was prime minister for the first time. The media then even then was it was pretty much, it meant the papers and the telly, 
the news, mm-hmm. right? And you had to t- you had to make an effort to watch the news. Now you've got telly around you all the time. You've got radio around you all the time. You've got podcast stuff around you all the time. You've got new newspapers springing up. You've got old newspapers dying. And social media, I think, has given people the capacity to shape their own media landscape. So there's no agenda. How and would it's you, chaotic. As someone who's, who's, you know, made a livelihood in a way out of controlling and influencing the media, mm. how do you do that now that it's semi-anarchic, it's totally liberalised? I think there are different ways of doing it, but the, the key to me, you mentioned strategy in, in, the, in the introduction, the pressures are all to be more tactical, but I think the response should be to be more strategic. Or you go the Trump route, which, as Hillary Clinton says in her book, what Trump did during the campaign with his Twitter stuff is he knows that the media have got the attention span of a gnat, so he throws a different rabbit every few hours, and they go scurrying after all the rabbits, and they never actually focus on the big picture, which is, how the hell is this guy there, and what on earth is he doing? And so I think... I, my response would be to be more strategic, but he has become president by doing the opposite. He's actually, he sees it as a tactical tool. Yeah, and he, and he he's quite instinctive, it. I think. I think it's instinctive. I wondered at the start whether it was a strategy. I think it became a strategy, almost by accident. I think he went into, just as Boris Johnson went onto the leave side without actually thinking they'd win, I think Trump went into the campaign thinking this is about and a great sort of branding opportunity for him. He's clearly a complete narcissist. It's all about him. But I think then he realised, as he went in, he started knocking these other guys down, and he thought, this is working. I can win. Why don't you quickly define the difference between strategy and tactics? And this is something you do in your other book, Winners. Um, I, my, I think you have to set an objective. The strategy... So the, the objective is what do you want to achieve. The strategy is what I call the big how... And the tactics are the bits. Okay. Now, coming back to the subject of technology and politics, um, let me uh, put something to you. Mm -hmm. As a result of the liberalisation of of the media and social media and Facebook and Twitter, um, one thing that has happened is that the the, um, people have become much more politically engaged than they were... 15 years ago, say. I can remember writing a sketch for Radio 4 after your, was it 2000 or 2001, the election victory then, Mm. which was the victory speech by the Apathy Party. Mm. Because people just were not interested. And suddenly we've got a much more engaged um, population. Mm. Hold on a minute, can I just hold you on that? Go. I think the reason for that was actually nobody thought we were not going to win. So I'm not sure it was an active apathy in the way that Fair enough. you might suggest. Fair enough. But even so, I don't think you can deny that people are much more politically engaged than they were half a generation ago. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the forces driving that has been the liberalisation of media. What we're seeing with new developments in blockchain technology, which is the technology behind Bitcoin, one of the applications of blockchain is in new voting apps mm. and within before long we're going to be able to vote on with um, 10 times the security of current electoral systems mm-hmm. for a fraction of the cost mm-hmm. of holding a referendum and this kind of technological possibility coupled with a more politically engaged population mm. I think means that people are going to demand more votes and so we're kind of going to move away from a representative democracy to a more direct mm. democracy. What do you think of that idea? Um, I worry about it. 
to be honest, I think that look, I think the we can disagree about Brexit, but I think the referendum has, has created the biggest catastrophe for this country since the Second World War. I believe that, and I believe it passionately. Your catastrophe is my opportunity. Right. Well, I see it as a catastrophe. There we go. Um, I I think one of the reasons that we're moving... I think you're right, by the way, that we may be moving in that direction. But one of the reasons for that is actually people look at the current crop of leaders and kind of think, is this, is this the best we can do? Um, I also agree that I think social media has made people f- feel more empowered. Um, whether that is always about what you define as political engagement, I'm not so sure. I, I, the, I, I can't remember if it's this book or the next one, because there are more to come, dear readers. Uh, but I remember when the whole kind of X-factor, pop idol thing was taking off. I remember being down at Tessa Jowell's, so we were staying for the weekend with Tessa Jowell and her family. And Tessa, there was, a, there was a, I think he was a bin man called Andy, who was a singer on one of these programmes. And Tessa just loved him. She kept voting for him again. I said, Tessa, what the hell are you doing? This is just a stupid TV programme where a Simon Cowell type figure is taking the, the industry to the cleaners. And she was just loving it, right? And they, so they are all my kids and said, oh, stop being so po-faced, stop saying, old fart, da-da-da. And I said, look, this is giving people the impression that this is what voting is about. That voting is about something that can give you an instant hit. You can pick the next pop star. You can, you can decide who's going to become, out of one of these reality TV shows, the next big thing. Voting in elections, in my view, is about electing serious people to take big decisions about the direction of the country. That's what I think elections are for, and we've stopped doing that. So I worry about that trend. Well, do we, do we need to make a few mistakes in order to learn, assuming that the current people who got elected are mistakes? Well, made, made, as as, as I'm sure I good. can persuade you if I had enough time, we've made a massive mistake in the, as a result of the referendum. So do we need to make mistakes? Look, governments always make mistakes, but I, th- I think that this is more serious and more, more, um, more urgent than that. Because, because what, you're, what you're kind of saying is we know... The, the people you elect know better than no, you. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we, the people, should be electing leaders who then have to make decisions, aggregate interests and mm-hmm. make decisions. And I worry that if we just say... right, Should they not just be the administrators of the will of the people? Yeah, but the will of the people can be defined in many, many ways. People, people who supported Brexit say the will of the people was defined that would leave the European Union. I could argue that the general election, the will of the people was to say, I don't want any of you lot. Now, how do you yeah. make sense of that? How do you make sense of that? You have to have a government. You can't exist as a country, as a world. We have to have governments. We have to have leaders. Otherwise, you do have anarchy. Um, but I worry that the, the whole social media thing, and it's not just about social media, it's about actually a culture of instant gratification. I want something and I want it now. Well, actually, policy and government is difficult. It can be incredibly slow. And it doesn't always lend itself to somebody going on a phone or an app and saying, this is what I want now. And that's where you have to, you know, we have to rebuild the trust with institutions because otherwise I think we are, I'm afraid, going to hell in a handcart. And you see this right around the world. I mean, America at the moment, um, you know, okay, most of my American friends would be on the Democrat side of things. But I think there's a kind of, there's a sort of, people are feeling just in shock about what their president is and what he represents. 
And I look at the, Europe at the moment. I mean, Macron, breath of fresh air, I hope. Uh, if Merkel wasn't there at the moment, I'd be a little bit worried about where the world is going. And you've got China, you've got Russia, you've got the whole ISIS stuff. I don't think I've ever known such a collection of real A-grade problems in the world, and yet we seem to have pretty C-D-grade leaders. It's a, it's a real problem for the world. Before we talk about, talk about your book, you mentioned the word ISIS there. Mm. What do you think should be the approach to the terrorist threat that the UK is currently experiencing? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of things. I mean, you've got to have the security response. You have to have that. Um, but you also have to... I see Theresa Mays at the United Nations. She's talking about this, again, about the technology, about the... The, the, the way that the, these kind of new technological giants... I don't think Zuckerberg's in the index 10 years mm-hmm. ago either. So these have come on incredibly quickly. Um, and I do think there's a... I think you've got to be careful. I think, you know, we probably both broadly believe in freedom of speech. But equally, there is responsibility that goes with that. Um, I saw a thing on the news last night about Amazon and, you know, if you, if you can easily work out if you just sort of follow the trail of people who bought this also bought that. You can work out very quickly how to make a bomb. Now, you could probably work out how to make a bomb anyway because there's stuff, there's books around mm-hmm. there. But I think that we do have to be very, very careful with where this stuff's going. I also worry, to be honest. I mean, I love the whole social media thing when it started. I'm getting a bit more sceptical. I think the... I think the abuse that you see now is just so relentless. Is the approach to immigration right? Does that need to change? Um, I think we... I, I don't believe that this idea that we were taking back control of our borders... We had control. It's just that we also had... It's, it's immigration that I'm not talking about like. Brexit. I'm talking specifically about terrorism. Um, I think we've got to be very, very... You've got to have tough immigration. Of course you have. You've got to be very, very careful, though not to assume, as I think a lot of people do, and this is what, I mean, I really wouldn't like to be a Muslim living in Britain and other European countries right now because I think people are making assumptions. Um, the, 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 are, those the, mis- are those assumptions misplaced? Or, or? A lot of them are, yeah, because we, 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 people tend to tar whole races and religions with the same brush. I'll tell you the other thing that goes on. Um, I've just walked over the bridge there past the MI6 and, and MI5, and, you, you, you know... You see these, these guys are operating in very, very difficult, dangerous circumstances and they're trying to keep track of something that's very f- dangerous and fast developing. And we fight against giving them more power. Understand that. Then when something happens, we say, why didn't they know about it? Mm-hmm. Why didn't they track that guy, that guy? Every time you see a terrorist attack, and it will come out, you know, he was on the radar of the security services because he'd done something or he'd said something. And people say, why didn't they follow that through? Why weren't they tracking him 24 hours a day? Answer, because they don't necessarily have the resources and they don't necessarily have the powers. So we kind of, it's back to the thing I said to you about, we want that, we, we do, to quote Boris Johnson in a Brexit context, people do want their cake and eat it. So these things are about, you know, there are lots of different competing balances that people are having to... And that's why you have politics, and that's why you have argument, and that's why you ultimately have to take decisions and try and get that balance right. The book. Let's talk about the book. Um, One of the big themes, your mental health. Why don't we talk about that? 
Okay, yeah, happily. How, how, how is it? <laughs> Today is not bad. Okay. I've just been through a bit of a bad patch. Um, how, how bad? How come? How come? I just had depression for a, over the... Bit is there a the trigger? Summer. Is there something that triggers it? No idea. No idea. No idea. It just, it just comes on every now and then. I, I, what's interesting about in this volume is actually that um, this is the period where I finally realised I couldn't do this stuff on my own. And I started seeing a psychiatrist regularly. Um, and it's helped. It's definitely helped. It's a guy called David Sturgeon, who's a really nice guy. And he's, um, he persuaded me, actually, that medication's okay. I used to hate medication. I still do hate medication, but I now take it every day. And that has definitely helped. Um, sport helps. My family helps. Music helps. When you get depressed, you just become unreasonable, don't want to talk to anyone, lock yourself in a room, kind of? Uh, it, I mean, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you've got to go out because, you you know, you're doing things. And um, But, yeah, sometimes I'm, so I'd say, mildly catatonic. Just don't want to see the world, lie down. Can't wake up sometimes. Just Well, I can wake up, but I can't open my eyes. So when it's so bad... So you just lie in bed? Might lie in bed, might get up, might lie on the sofa, might uh, try and do stuff. But, yeah, when it's bad, it's really bad. And do you become unreasonable? Yeah. Yeah, I do, yeah. I become... I'm conscious of it, though, so I do try and hide myself away a bit. Yeah. I don't particularly want... But I, And I think, you know, um, funny enough, Fiona and I, my partner and I, we did it when the Prince William and Prince Harry did the started the Heads Together campaign. She and I did one of their interviews, to, films together... Um, and I've become much more conscious of the fact that when I'm like that, even subconsciously, I'm taking it out on her in a way that I don't necessarily intend to, but I do. Because, and she said that, you know, sometimes she feels like she's the problem because she can't seem to engage with me. And, and I think that, so I'm more conscious of it now. And actually the, the process of actually seeing a psychiatrist regularly, he sent me loads of tests, he made me write loads of things... Um, recording my dreams and this sort of stuff. And he's definitely helped me to get to a better understanding, not just of myself, but also about the effect it's having on other people. And when people say to you, oh, there's no such, you just need to man up, what, what's your reaction? Headbutt them, break the nose, break the jaw, <laughs> knee them in the knackers. Um, I just think it's... Well, if somebody, well, I remember when Stephen Fry once did an interview mm. and he talked about how he'd, he'd tried to kill himself uh, because of his depression. And somebody tweeted... Stephen Fry, what a life. He's popular, he's talented, everybody loves him. What has he got to be depressed about? And I, uh, I tweeted, would you say, what has he got to be cancerous about? What's he got to be asthmatic about? What's he got to be diabetic about? It is an illness. And it's an illness that affects some people, and it doesn't affect everybody. Um, and because it's in the mind, it's, it's a lot... This is why I respect psychiatrists so much, because it's so hard. If all you've got to go on is what's going on in there and then what the person tells you about it, it's very difficult to work it out. You can't scan it. You can't do an X-ray to see if your brain's broken. Well, you can if it's brain damage, but not if it's mental illness. Alistair, thank you very much. Thank My you for being pleasure. so honest. The book, ladies and gentlemen, is called From Blair to Brown and it uh, chronicles 2005 to 2007. It's the, day that Tony, it's the day of the third election, 2005, to the day that Tony left... Downing Street. So, an interesting period. It was a difficult period. And if people want to find out, you know, follow you, why don't you give out your Twitter handle and that kind of uh, thing? At Campbell Claret, um, alistaircampbell.org is my website, uh, and the book's published by Buyback. Okay, for someone who says they're depressed, you're very prolific. 
Ah, but you see, you're assuming that if you're depressed, you're not. I, I get a great creativity out of my depression. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, when I come out of it particularly, sometimes I'm a bit manic after a depressive episode. I mean, the, the, I've mentioned the novel about... Maybe it's a way, your mental way of storing up energy. I think it is. I think it is. And, and also it's a way of getting good out of the bad. Mm-hmm. So one of the novels I wrote, I, did it, I wrote it in nine days. I wrote the draft in nine days. I was completely manic. And I rewrote it a few times. But the, the energy... So sometimes you get real creativity. You know, who was our greatest ever Prime Minister? Obviously, apart from Tony, Winston Churchill. I was going to say Margaret Thatcher. Winston Churchill. <laughs> uh, and, you know, he coined the phrase the black dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gladstone. I'll say Gladstone. OK. Alistair Campbell, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. So much. And we'll be back with more Stuff That Interests Me next week. I'm Dominic Frisby. Thanks very much for watching. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, If you like the interview, please share it with a friend. And more importantly, please give us a nice rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you.